Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for March 23rd, 2018. I'm Brian Cardown. This is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient constitutional and appellate law questions. Today's hour will be devoted entirely to the Ninth Circuit's First Amendment appeal argued before the Supreme Court this week. The case is National Institute of Family and Life Advocates versus Becerra. At issue is a California law known as the Reproductive Fact Act that requires crisis pregnancy centers run by nonprofit, usually religiously affiliated organizations, to post a notice informing their pregnant clients that California offers a range of low cost or no cost reproductive health services like contraception, prenatal care, and most salient here, abortion. California's stated reason for the disclosure law was that the centers the state believed presented pregnant women with misleading and incomplete information about their available options. The centers challenged the law as violating their First Amendment rights to present a pro-life message to their clients and to operate a pro-life mission. It's a case with many facets and lots of entry points for constitutional analysis, so we'll host a few guests today, all Amici in the case, and all of whom briefed somewhat different aspects of the appeal and its attendant issues, among them a potential risk of diluting First Amendment strict scrutiny protections, where such protections applied here, the debate as to how commonplace and doctrinally supported these sorts of disclosures are, the issue of whether a professional speech doctrine that recommends less exacting judicial scrutiny here in fact exists, and if so, what its boundaries are, and finally, the different medical contexts that allow and those that do not allow for disclosures like the one required by California's law. We'll hear from Robert McNamara of the Institute for Justice, Brianne Gorod of the Constitutional Accountability Center, Steve Aden of Americans United for Life, and John Baker of Green Espo. But before that, let's get to our opening briefs. Aside from hearing arguments, the Supreme Court issued a few rulings this week, one in a securities case from the California Courts of Appeal. There, the High Court held that a 1998 federal law, the Securities Litigation Uniform Standards Act, which amended the 1933 Securities Act, does not bar state courts from hearing class actions entailing only claims brought under the 1933 federal law. The San Francisco Superior Court had held as much, and the First District Court of Appeal had denied review before SCOTUS decided to weigh in. The opinion was unanimous and downplayed the defendant's concern, advanced by former acting Solicitor General Neil Katyal, that state courts have been overrun by federal securities claims. The California Supreme Court may soon consider a novel question, namely whether children conceived through in vitro fertilization after the death of a parent are entitled to that parent's social security benefits. The plaintiff in the case has unsuccessfully sought such benefits for her twins conceived by IVF after her husband's passing. The case wound all the way up to the Ninth Circuit, which decided to punt the matter over to California's High Court for clarification on the underlying probate law issues. And in a fairly doctrinally important ruling, the California Supreme Court held yesterday that colleges and universities do have a special relationship with their students such that schools owe a tort duty of care to their students to protect them from foreseeable harm during classroom and other curricular activities. The decision reverses a split Second District Court of Appeal opinion, which held that UCLA owed no such duty in a case where a student was brutally attacked in her chemistry lab by a fellow student of whose erratic and threatening behavior UCLA had some knowledge. The opinion was unanimous, but Justice Chen wrote separately to note that the court's standard extending to curricular activities outside the classroom was a bit fuzzy. On 
on Tuesday, SCOTUS heard over an hour of argument on the constitutionality of a California law requiring usually religiously affiliated pregnancy centers to make patients aware of their option to seek a state-funded abortion. The matter raises a number of different First Amendment issues, and we'll dive into a few of them now with a handful of the cases amici. First, with Bob McNamara, senior counsel with the Institute for Justice in Arlington, Virginia, who worries that California's argument in the Ninth Circuit's reasoning below seeks to cement and extend a First Amendment professional speech doctrine that he says has no firm basis in the high court's jurisprudence. Bob, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So there are a handful of issues and, and sub-issues presented to the, the court in the realm of you know, First Amendment doctrine by this case. Uh, your brief focuses principally on on one, and it's, it's regards maybe over-expansion by lower federal courts of what we'll call the professional speech doctrine, um, under which doctrine, and that's something that uh, the lower court here, the Ninth Circuit, at least in part, used uh, to base its opinion and uphold the California law that was challenged. The uh, the idea being that certain types of speech, the kind conveyed by those providing professional services to clients seeking those services, might receive less First Amendment protection than traditional speech. Um, you say that sort of doctrine or framework is ill-advised and doesn't have a whole lot of doctrinal footing. We'll get into to just why that is in just a second, but just wanted to, to set up the facts here very briefly and, uh, and then make sure, uh, give you a chance to frame them differently if you'd like. So uh, the challengers are religious organizations that operate pregnancy centers in California, tend to be not-for-profit and um, you know, aligned with their religious purpose, tend to, to counsel pregnant women away from seeking to terminate their pregnancies. And California law in question here requires certain disclosures of those centers to make sure their, their patients or their clients know that there is state uh, subsidized uh, uh, opportunities for them to obtain abortions. Um, and so that law is being challenged. Is that um, a fair framing? Yeah, I think those are the basic facts of the case. Okay. Um, now, the Ninth Circuit here, as part of its reasoning, said that because um, the, the speech is conveyed by uh, a provider of professional services, here, you know, um, these clinics have the, the look and feel of, of, of medical clinics, even though maybe some of them don't offer uh, too intensive uh, medical services. Because of that, there should be a lower level of scrutiny applied to laws like California's law here because of the professional speech doctrine. What's the, the premise on which that argument rests and what's sort of the background to, uh, to, to that doctrine? So, so the entire idea of the professional speech doctrine, which is an invention of lower courts, it's never been adopted or used or even cited approvingly by the U.S. Supreme Court, but the basic idea is that there's a certain class of people who are called professionals, and it's not totally clear who falls in or out of that category, as we can talk about. Um, but there are professionals, and when professionals are giving individualized advice to people, uh, the people they're talking to are so inexpert and so naive that we have to accord less First Amendment protection to the professional speech in order to protect their audience from... I guess being overborne by the greater expertise of the people talking to them uh, is, is is part of the basis too that there's there might be a greater state interest in, in sort of ensuring that providers of of certain services or folks in certain professions like these sort of archetypal ones in this doctrine like doctors and lawyers um, are providing services and the information to their clients that the state would want to be provided just so that 
that the care and the service given is kind of up to snuff? Well, I think you have to to be careful to lay out the exact parameters of what you're talking about. And the so, for example, in this case, the Office of the Solicitor General has taken the position that really the professional speech doctrine just applies to doctors and lawyers, as you suggest. That turns out in operation to be a hard line to draw, uh, and the professional speech doctrine has been invoked uh, to protect everything, to restrict the speech of everyone from fortune tellers. The Fourth Circuit has actually held that fortune tellers are professionals for giving individualized advice under this doctrine and are entitled to less protection. Uh, to tour guides, to literally uh, a lawyer for the state of Kentucky invoked the professional speech doctrine uh, in defense of Kentucky's attempt to prevent someone to prevent a syndicated newspaper columnist from publishing a Dear Abby-style advice column in Kentucky newspapers on the grounds that that advice column was giving individualized advice to letter writers and was therefore professional speech. Uh, so it, it's a doctrine with notoriously slippery borders, which is one of the the points we try to make in our brief to the court, is, look, we've been litigating occupational speech cases in the lower courts for years now, and let us tell you some of the things we've seen. This doctrine... Uh, fits the pattern of kind of any other exception to the First Amendment. And one of my law school professors always told me that the the hallmark of the First Amendment is that any exception to First Amendment protection immediately outgrows its bounds and is immediately used by government officials to shut down speech they don't like. And that's what we've seen with the professional speech doctrine. Uh, it was invented by lower courts, uh, kind of at sea, trying to figure out what to do with this issue. Um, they've done what lower courts frequently do, which is invent a doctrine that gives people lower First Amendment protections than the Supreme Court has said they're entitled to. And that doctrine has immediately been used uh, to to defend laws far outside the, the ordinary bounds. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that everything a, a doctor or a lawyer does is speech and is therefore necessarily entitled to First Amendment protection. What it means is that we do ordinary First Amendment analysis uh, when we deal with laws whose impact is triggered by speech of a particular content. Now, um, in terms of the doctrinal footing of this professional speech doctrine, you say that it, it, it's pretty much non, non-existent. So where did it come from? Did, is it related at all to the sort of commercial speech doctrine that does have some more footing? Where have lower courts um, tried to find footing for, for this sort of idea? So the basic idea traces back to a concurrence in a case called Lowe v. SEC. Uh, it's written by Justice Byron White. It has never been cited approvingly uh, by a majority of the U.S. Supreme Court or really by anyone on the U.S. Supreme Court since it was written. Uh, but what Justice White posits is that the First Amendment generally applies to restrictions on speech. Uh, but if you are talking about someone who is... Uh, a professional who takes the affairs of his clients into his own hands and exercises judgment on their behalf, that person is no longer engaged in speech, but is instead engaged in the conduct of a profession. And that's the basic idea uh, that lower courts have taken and run with. So I think there's, there's a fundamental conceptual problem just with that attempt to draw the line, because it's conflating two things, uh, conflating things that are speech and things that are not speech. Uh, if someone is taking the affairs of the client into their hands and exercising judgment on their behalf, as, for example, if I'm an uh, investment advisor who actually takes your money from you and invests your money on your behalf, I'm not engaged in speech at all. I'm taking money from you and investing it on your behalf. Uh, if I'm just telling you 
here's what I think you should do. Uh, this is my advice. Uh, there's not really an easy line to draw between me saying, here's my advice, and your bartender saying, here's my advice, or your cab driver saying, here's my advice. And so you don't need Justice White's kind of unique formulation to draw this line. You need the line we always use in First Amendment cases, which is the line between speech and conduct. Okay, um, maybe so walk me through what that that more doctrinally traditional approach would be uh, in a case like this if you're just using the the normal First Amendment approach without creating this special uh, safe harbor sort of carve-out. Does the... Does the, the state's interest then just weigh in later when you're doing the heightened scrutiny and, and potentially make sure clients or users of these clinics have notice of their, their rights? Exactly. So the strength of the government's interest comes in when you're doing the scrutiny of the actual law. You can't use the strength of the government's interest to decide how much First Amendment scrutiny to apply in the first place because that's that's double counting it. Like what we do when we apply strict scrutiny is we say, okay, What's the government's interest? What's the and how well tailored is this law? What's the evidence that the government's advancing this interest that it couldn't advance it without squelching speech? So you have to use the government's interest when you're applying strict scrutiny. Uh, but if you say, well, the government has a really strong interest here, so we can't apply strict scrutiny. We have to apply intermediate scrutiny. You're you're using the interest in both columns. Right? The government's interest comes into play after you decide whether and how the First Amendment applies. And the kind of the best illustration of this, there was a case a few years ago in the U.S. Supreme Court called Holder v. Humanitarian Law Project. It illustrates both of these points perfectly. Uh, so Holder v. Humanitarian Law Project is a challenge to a federal law that prohibits providing material support to certain designated terrorist groups. And the plaintiffs in Holder said, hey, we're lawyers, we're experts in various fields, there are groups that have been designated as terrorist groups, and we want to give them advice. We want to tell them how to uh, secure humanitarian aid. We want to tell them how to press their case in front of the UN. And everything we want to do is just talk to them. It's pure speech. We don't want to give them money. We just want to advise them. And the government said, well, wait a minute. This isn't speech at all. This is conduct. Uh, this is the provision of support, and the provision of support is conduct, and so the First Amendment doesn't apply. And the plaintiffs, for their part, said, this is political speech. We're engaged in political speech by giving them this advice. And the Supreme Court said, uh, and it's a 5-4 opinion, but actually all nine justices concur on this basic point. Uh, the Supreme Court said, no, both of you are wrong. Uh, this isn't political speech. You're giving people practical advice. This isn't, you know, political advocacy uh, in the public sphere, as that's traditionally understood. But it's also not conduct. The government can't just label something conduct. What you do is you look at what the conduct is that triggers the application of the law. And in this instance, the conduct that triggered the application of the law was communicating a message. Uh, these people wanted to give specialized advice to designated terrorist groups, and the specialized advice counted as material support. If they had given unspecialized advice, uh, if they had just chatted with these people about the weather, that would be perfectly legal. But they wanted to give them legal advice about how to proceed in front of the UN. That was material support. And the court said, well, what triggers the application of the law here is their speech. And because uh, what triggers the application of the law is speech communicating a particular message, that gets strict scrutiny. That's a content-based restriction on speech. And what the court then did, and this is where the case divides on five, four lines, is five justices, 
thought that the law, at least as presented in that case, survived strict scrutiny. The government had a very compelling interest in restricting material aid to these groups. Uh, the, the plaintiffs, the majority said, hadn't kind of sufficiently pled exactly what they wanted to say. Um, and so their broader challenge failed because under the broader challenge, they found that the law generally met the requirement of strict scrutiny. But the interest comes in on that second part. The first part is purely deciding, is this a restriction on speech? And if it's a restriction on speech, is it a content-based restriction on speech? And that's all you have to do in in any case. Applying the First Amendment doesn't mean you strike down a law. Applying the First Amendment means you analyze what the government's doing using the existing First Amendment framework. Sure. Yeah, I think um, the general supposition always seems to be that once strict scrutiny is applied, that's sort of the end of the story. But as you say, uh, laws can, in fact, sur- survive it. Exactly. I mean, they it, it's not common, but they can and do at least twice in the past half dozen years. The Supreme Court has looked at a law, applied strict scrutiny, and said, actually, in this instance, we think it survives. Um, I just wanted to, to flag one other point that I think is raised in, in your brief, and I think some others, um, this distinction between speech prohibitions and, and um, compelled disclosures of information. The example you cited earlier about a, you know, a law that might prohibit an editorial writer from uh, publishing advice to, to folks, um, and a couple others that you cite in your brief where the professional speech doctrine has come into play to vitiate protections for a certain speech. Um, they tend to be instances where laws are prohibiting speech here. Um, it, this is just a, a bunch of information that's required to, to be displayed at these uh, centers of the law that California is not stopping them from counseling the clients as they as they wish. Um, do you think there's a much of a legal difference there? It seems like courts have treated disclosures different than speech prohibitions in the past, right? Oh, there's absolutely a difference. So for purposes of the professional speech doctrine as it's been applied, there isn't a difference. Uh, what the Ninth Circuit said in this case is once you're in the professional speech box, you just get lower scrutiny. And so kind of the important doctrinal thing that I'm worried about is explaining to the court that the entire idea of professional speech is dangerous, will be abused, has already been abused in the jurisdictions that have adopted it, and that the court should should tread lightly before signing off on a brand new exception to the First Amendment that would apply in both contexts. Uh, now, that doesn't really tell you whether the government wins or loses in this case. And our brief doesn't even really get into how you would apply the compelled speech precedents. Where our primary interest is just persuading the court and letting the court know that this doctrine is dangerous and has to be rejected. Now, once you reject that doctrine, we have the entire panoply of First Amendment precedents out there to grapple with. Uh, and so the questions you ask are, is, is this directed at commercial speech? Uh, is it regulating commercial solicitation? I think the, the plaintiffs would say, no, it's not. It's directed at pure speech. Um, is, and what's the government's interest in having this information, uh, distributed, uh, at this point by this person? Kind of the, the classic example of compelled speech, uh, might be the, the compelled speech that's attendant to, say, um, informed consent in the medical context. If the government wants to say, if you're going to perform an appendectomy, it's illegal not to tell your patient that the result of the procedure is that his appendix is going to come out. That actually, I, I think, meets pretty easily the requirements of strict scrutiny. You're cutting the guy's appendix out. You have to let him know you're cutting his appendix out. Even if we treat that as an instance of compelled speech, that's a very easy compelled speech case. Uh, and when you apply those precedents to this case, it gets 
dicier as as First Amendment cases tend to be. And I think you saw that in the oral argument that a lot of the justices, um, you know, Justice Sotomayor really honed in on this point and sort of why are these particular entities required to display this information, provide this information. Uh, if you're interested in making sure everyone who provides pregnancy-related services provides in this information, um, wouldn't your law be broader? Why have you drawn it this way? And it really gets into basically the tailoring question. And that's always where First Amendment cases end up, is the tailoring question. I think that's what most of the justices were focused on at oral argument. Um, and that's really, honestly, that's a part of the ball game where I... Uh, I, I have not engaged in any efficacy. Uh, if I can get the court to say the First Amendment applies to everyone across the board, then the, the chips fall where they may, kind of on where this particular case comes out. Because I think, really, regardless of whether California's law stands or falls, uh, that's, with, with all respect to the important interests on both sides, that's not the end of the Republic either way. Uh, the problem would be if the Supreme Court endorses the idea of professional speech, uh, getting lesser First Amendment protection, that would uh, have really dramatic effects on speech all across the country in ways that, frankly, both ends of the political spectrum would not like. And, you know, I've been engaged in advocacy on this issue for years now, and I've managed to kind of make people on the left and the right very, very mad at me, uh, <laughs> depending on what the particular law is where this is is being applied. You know, in this instance, the professional speech doctrine is being invoked to to protect a law that's cracking down on crisis pregnancy centers. And so a lot of people on the left intuitively support the state here. But, you know, one of, just a couple of years ago, one of the last big fights about professional speech was a law in Florida where the, the American Medical Association had published uh, a new recommendation for doctors, urging doctors, and I think especially pediatricians, to talk to their patients about guns. Uh, and kind of the subtext was persuade your patients not to have guns around because guns are dangerous to their health and their children's health. And kind of the gun rights groups got very angry about this, that doctors were going to start lobbying against gun ownership to their patients. And they got the Florida legislature to pass a law forbidding doctors from asking their patients about guns or talking to their patients about guns. And so there, once again, the state said, this is professional speech. These are doctors. The state has a regulatory interest in controlling what they say, and the First Amendment doesn't apply in the normal way. And so there, I was making the same argument I'm making now, but people on the right were furious with um, I, I got lots of emails from them then. And so I think the thing to really understand is that the First Amendment applies to everyone. It applies all across the country. And so if, the, if you weaken the First Amendment to protect a law you like in California, that doctrine is going to be used to protect a law you hate in Alabama and vice versa. Uh, the, the political valence of the state is going to determine what speech gets squelched, but removing the First Amendment protection guarantees you that speech is going to get squelched. Yeah, there's an even sort of more immediate flip side of this case. Is going. I think it allows in states like Arizona that tend to be more right of center where the law compelled doctors in, in a similar setting but at abortion clinics to, to advise patients of certain um, medical uh, facts which doctors may be disagreed with about the the results, the negative results that could occur to patients if they did seek abortion. So it seems no, like that's exactly right. And we, we actually cite that Arizona case in our brief. And you have, it's another reason we wanted to file our brief, you have this kind of same weird dance here where I think the, the state of California wants to say professional speech doctrine gives us an enormous amount of power. 
because the state, of course, always wants an enormous amount of power. That's kind of what the state is for. Um, but you also have the plaintiffs who, you know, are ideological groups who are very invested in the idea that you can also restrict the speech of, uh, and, you know, not necessarily, I'm not speaking about the plaintiffs, their attorneys specifically, but groups on their side, amici on their side, who are sensitive about the idea that, you know, maybe we do want to be able to have laws that force abortion providers to say things they don't want to say and provide information that, you know, perhaps is, is false and doesn't survive First Amendment scrutiny. And what we're trying to be is just the honest broker that, look, the First Amendment has to apply the same way to everybody. Uh, and there are dangers. What, Whatever kind of law, whatever kind of laws you dislike, uh, there's an example of a law you dislike where the professional speech doctrine was invoked to to limit speech. And so, kind of whatever political sympathy you may have, uh, that political sympathy has been silenced by someone waving the professional speech flag. And that is why I think we all need to care about this. And my my hope would be that, you know, to the extent the court addresses the question, the court does what it's done several times in the past few years, which is remind lower courts that they're not supposed to be in the business of creating new exceptions to the First Amendment, um, which the court has held repeatedly. And actually, in in the first case where the Ninth Circuit really articulated this professional speech doctrine, uh, in a case called Pick Up the Brown, Judge O'Scanlan on the Ninth Circuit dissented from uh, the denial of rehearing on Bonk, making exactly that point. Like, wait a minute, guys. This is a new doctrine that says this kind of speech gets less protection. The Supreme Court has specifically said we don't get to make those up anymore. We were supposed to knock this off. And this is the first time, um, you know, there hasn't been, there wasn't a cert grant and pickup. There hasn't been a cert grant in any of these other cases. The first time since really lower courts have started articulating this doctrine that it's in front of the Supreme Court, this particular doctrinal innovation. And so it's very important Whatever you think about the underlying California law, however you think the compelled speech doctrine applies here, that, that the court rejects the idea that there is a separate professional speech doctrine that should govern the analysis here. Okay, uh, last one. As to the specific doctrinal innovation, the professional speech doctrine, did, did it get much, much airing at uh, our oral argument on Wednesday? I think at least uh, Justice Alito mentioned the sort of creeping nature of the doctrine. Um, did you get a sense of the court reckoning with this question? Um, so Justice Alito very specifically asked about it and seemed concerned about the boundaries of the doctrine in exactly the way I think he should be concerned about the boundaries of the doctrine. Uh, and I'm not sure if he got a great answer to his questions. The state obviously pressed the idea that this was professional speech, uh, though really didn't didn't have an occasion because the argument was so focused on tailoring, uh, did not really defend the idea of the doctrine. So I think what we're seeing is there's pretty widespread skepticism of the law specifically on the bench, uh, and Justice Alito particularly is concerned about the idea that the, the foundation of California's argument is that we need to, to develop and invent a new category of speech. And so I, it certainly came up. It was addressed at, at some length by Justice Alito, and so I would not be surprised to see any opinions, but you... That there's a long, long road between argument and written opinion. So we'll have to see what happens. Sure, many is the slip twixt cup and, and lip, as uh, they say. Um, we'll find out soon enough uh, just exactly how the, the Supreme Court feels about that particular question in the case overall. Uh, but for now, Robert McNamara, senior attorney with the Institute for Justice in Arlington, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Her amicus filing for the Constitutional Accountability Center, Brianne Gorod, 
that Washington, D.C. legal think tank's chief counsel argues that the required notice entailed in California's law is fairly commonplace and that similar disclosures, particularly those advising individuals of state or federal rights of which they're perhaps not aware, have long withstood First Amendment challenges. She joins us now. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, so the, the central thrust of your group's amicus filing is that the, the required disclosure here, the notice required by the California's law, is fairly commonplace, um, exists in a lot of um, laws at state and national levels, and has some, some solid constitutional law doctrinal footing. Um, maybe first, could you just remind me what exactly this uh, required disclosure advisors clients advises clients of? What, what is a, what's in it? Sure. So the, the California law requires these crisis pregnancy centers um, to give notices of what's essentially objective factual information. If the clinic is licensed to provide medical services, it has to inform women that California has public programs that provide immediate free or low-cost access to comprehensive family planning services, uh, prenatal care, and abortion for eligible women, and a phone number that they can call to see if they qualify for those services. If the center is unlicensed, it has to post a notice simply saying that it's not licensed as a medical facility and has no licensed medical provider who provides or directly supervises the provision of services. So again, you know, notices of objective, um, neutral, factual information. Um, and so as you said, um, the, the central theme of your brief is, is, is disclosures like this are, are not uncommon and they have been seen and approved of by courts and the Supreme Court before. Uh, could you describe to me some of that uh, common disclosure patrimony here, some of the, the previous type uh notices that have been required and maybe have been reckoned with by the courts and why they tend to get the stamp of imprimatur by by courts? Sure. So these kinds of notice requirements, and in particular, notice requirements that inform individuals of their legal rights or services that are available to them under law are, as as you said, they're totally pervasive. Um, At the federal level alone, there are numerous examples. Think about when you go to the doctor's office, you're informed about your rights to privacy, about your medical information. You always get that form um, in the waiting room while you're waiting to see the doctor. When you go to work and you go to the break room, you'll see notices posted informing you of your right to a safe workplace and your right to be free from employment discrimination. Uh, when people change jobs, they're informed about their right to continuing insurance coverage after loss of employment. Um, the list could go on and on and on. And these notices are really important um, and they serve substantial governmental interests because they ensure that statutory rights are actually enjoyed by the people they're designed to protect. They ensure that no one um, isn't is unable to access a right or a service that's available to them simply because they don't know about it. And so the Supreme Court and other courts have repeatedly upheld the authority of the government to impose disclosure requirements um, on service providers to ensure that consumers and others can make decisions based on accurate information. Um, what the court has recognized is that disclosure furthers important governmental interests and is entirely consistent with our interest as a society in broad access to complete and accurate information. You know, what the court has recognized is that people can make better informed decisions um, when they have all the information they need, in particular information about rights and about services available to them under law. Some of the examples that, that you've given exist in a professional space or exists in the context where professional services like medical services are being rendered. Um, how important is that context and how sort of uh, doctrinally supported is it? The Ninth Circuit sort of relied on the fact that this speech was in a professional setting, putting it uh, in, in a space that has less First Amendment protections, but arguments have been made by by the petitioners here and there. Amici 
that you know a proper professional setting, professional speech carve out is kind of a specious constitutional um, carve out. It doesn't really exist that speech regulations get strict scrutiny whether or not they're in professional settings. Um, what, what what is your response on on that argument? Sure. Well, you know, as you said, the Ninth Circuit did um, conclude that the the license center requirement here um, is a form of professional speech that you know subject to a lower form of scrutiny than some other types of speech. And, you know, in fact, states have always had broad power to establish, you know, standards for licensing practitioners and for regulating professions. Um, in the brief that the Solicitor General filed in this case, the Solicitor General acknowledged that. They said that's been going on from time immemorial. And the reason that, you know, states can regulate the professions is they have a broad police power to protect the people um, of their state. You know, they want to make sure that if someone goes to a doctor um, and they assume that doctor is applying medical expertise and knowledge um, in trying to help them, that that person really has the expertise they purport to have. And so states will regulate who can hold themselves out as a professional, what they need to do to maintain um, their status as a member of their profession, and, you know, often ethical guidelines or other rules that they need to follow. I mean, what courts have long recognized is that States don't lose their power to regulate professionals simply because pre- pre- simply because professionals engage in speech um, in doing their work, um, and so I think that's what the Ninth Circuit was recognizing when it held that this was professional speech. And the Ninth Circuit also recognized that when a professional is talking to a client, they're talking in the service of helping that particular client, not in engaging in some broader political or public debate. So there was a lot to what the Ninth Circuit said, but I don't think you actually need to necessarily get into that in order to conclude that the California law here is constitutional. Because as I said before, you know, these kinds of disclosure requirements um, have been upheld in a number of contexts and are completely consistent with more general First Amendment principles. Notice requirements, you know, like the ones here that simply inform individuals of their rights and of services available to them under law are completely commonplace and are completely consistent with existing First Amendment case law. You mentioned something there, uh, the, the broader political or uh-huh. public uh, public debate to to what extent kind of legally doctrinally does it does it matter that the disclosures here come in a context of an issue or a subject matter that's pretty religiously uh, politically uh, publicly socially very very charged um, you mentioned notices uh, will you know uh, privacy notices in, in medical settings that's not the sort of thing that tends to get people too um, fired up on either side of the political spectrum but the the question here the provision of state-funded um, contraception or abortion um, certainly exists in sort of just a, a different social um, space. Do, does that um, matter to the court? Should it matter to the court? No. I mean, these basic First Amendment principles don't change simply because a speaker disagrees even vehemently with the statutorily protected rights that he's required to disclose. Uh a doctor who thinks that the disclosures about medical privacy are wasteful or unproductive or even damaging to the environment still has to provide those disclosures to his patients. Uh, an employer who's opposed on moral or religious grounds to giving leave under the Family and Medical Leave Act to married same-sex couples still has to post the required notice informing employees about how they can exercise their rights under that federal law. The fact is that many federal protections spark bitter controversy. But opposition to a federal right, whether it's on religious or moral or some other grounds, doesn't give a speaker a First Amendment right to be exempt from generally applicable content-neutral disclosure requirements 
that ensure that individuals are informed about their rights and how to exercise them. And that's true whether the subject is medical privacy or equality or, as in this case, women's health care. Could you unpack one of your other arguments in the brief along the slippery slope lines um, where you say there's no real limiting principle when it comes to, to the petitioner's argument here and that following it would put or make vulnerable all sorts of disclosure requirements that are pretty uh, commonly understood as, as proper. Yeah, right. I mean, I, you know, as I just said, there's the courts never distinguish between topics that are controversial or not when it's assessed disclosure laws. And it's never distinguished between um, the other types of speech in which the speaker is engaging. And so the concern here is that it'd be really difficult to draw a line separating the the speech that's at issue in this case and the disclosure issue that's an issue in this case and all of these other disclosure requirements that are totally commonplace at both the federal level and also the state level. You know, think about an organization that opposes civil rights laws and, in fact, works to encourage governments um, not to enact them. Um, would that organization be exempt from posting notices about workplace discrimination laws in their offices? Um, I think it would just be really difficult to to draw a line, and that's why you know the implications of the broad First Amendment argument that these centers um, are making here um, is really troubling. Okay, could I ask you about one specific uh, required disclosure that I think came up a couple of times at oral argument from uh, a case that certainly bears some similarity to this one, but Planned Parenthood v. Casey from a couple of decades ago, um, also in the, the women's health context there. Uh, I believe the regulation that was upheld required um, abortion providers to allow or to, to advise uh, patients as to certain alter- alternatives to um, abortion. Um, that seems sort of like the flip side of this case's coin. What, what was discussed when it came to that disclosure? Does it bear on this case at all in your mind? You know, it definitely does, and, and for the reason you just said, that law really um, does feel like the flip side of this law. That Pennsylvania statute did a number of things, um, but among them, it required that a woman seeking an abortion be informed that the Pennsylvania Department of Health published printed materials which described um, the list of agencies which offered alternatives to abortion. Um, it required that she be informed that she could access medical assistance assistance benefits for prenatal care and childbirth and neonatal care. So really, as I just said, the flip side of this law, um, providing women who were considering an abortion information about alternatives to abortion and letting them know those services um, could be provided by the state. And so there was a lot of discussion um, about this requirement at oral argument. Uh, Justice Breyer used the phrase that sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander, and it was repeated several times over the course of the argument, because I think one thing that the justices are really going to be thinking about as they decide how to resolve this case um, are the implications not only for this California statute and and not only for the broad spectrum of disclosure requirements we've been talking about, but also, more specifically, how their decision in this case will affect um, similar laws that target abortion providers. Um, One point that was raised believe also at argument and certainly in in the briefs is that to some extent this California law seems pretty targeted at pregnancy centers like this. These ones tend to be religiously affiliated and nonprofit providers. Um, certainly laws that sort of speech laws particularly that target disfavored views tend to get some pretty uh, suspicious looks from courts. Um, but you write in your brief that um, it's it's not improper for states to maybe piecemeal address certain problems that, and and so as a result laws might come out that, that do tend to target, you know, not broad swaths, but more 
uh, individual sectors or, or certain actors more uh, specifically. Could you unpack that argument a bit? Sure, that's right. This is an issue that the court spent a lot of time on at the argument on Tuesday. Um, but as the attorney for California explained to the justices, the law was really de- designed in a way to try to reach those women whom it was most designed to help. You know, in passing this law, um, you know, California recognized that thousands of women were unaware of public programs that were available to them in the state, and California was particularly concerned about low-income pregnant women who have to make, you know, critically important often difficult decisions in a really time-sensitive manner. And these women, you know, particularly if they are low-income, might not have the resources to otherwise get all of the information they need to make a fully informed decision about what's best for them um, and for their family to make sure that if they decide to get an abortion, they can get it um, as soon as possible. If they decide to have their baby, to make sure they're getting the prenatal care um, that's so critically important. And so the law was really designed in a way to try to make sure that it most reached the the women that it was trying to help. So, you know, one example that came up um, at argument, I I believe the license disclosure requirement applies to free clinics, um, but not independent doctor's offices. And, you know, it's important to say that this doesn't target anyone on the basis of viewpoint. Of course, private physicians can support abortion or oppose it or have no view at all, but the statute covers free clinics um, because California legislators concluded that, you know, private physicians were less likely than free clinics to serve patients who are uninsured and not yet enrolled in these public programs. So again, you know, there are various exceptions in the law. The court spent a lot of time talking about those at the argument on Tuesday, um, but they were really just designed to make sure that the law um, most effectively reached the people that California concluded were most in need of help. Okay, maybe just one last one to wrap up to this extent we haven't um, discussed um, these points already how overall did, did, did the, the court at argument treat the issues we've talked about, you know, including the, the, the commonplace nature of disclosures like this and the idea of professional speech and uh, these various issues we've discussed? Yeah, so, you know, the court didn't really focus that much on the um, breadth of these similar disclosures, but it did, you know, as we've talked about a little bit, spend a lot of time on the KC disclosure and in particular and this idea that, you know, as Justice Breyer said, what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. Um, the counsel for these centers, you know, tried to distinguish the Casey uh, disclosure and suggest that states have broader authority to target abortion providers. Um, but neither he nor any of the justices really offered any convincing basis for doing so. So I think, you know, one thing to really look at as the court decides this case is, as I mentioned earlier, the implications for, you know, laws um, that apply to abortion providers in other states. And if the justices end up striking down this law, they could end up opening up an avenue to strike down some of these um, anti-abortion laws that exist in other states. Um, and then one other thing that was really interesting at the argument that a, a, a couple of justices brought up um, was the absence of a fully developed record below. Um, as more than one justice recognized, um, a number of the petitioners, a number of the arguments made by the lawyers for these centers um, their arguments really turn on empirical questions that aren't fully answered by the record. And the possibility that the Supreme Court might facially enjoin this state law in the absence of a fully developed record is troubling because lower courts are the ones that are generally better equipped than the Supreme Court to answer factual questions about how the law operates, the burdens, if any, it imposes on these centers. So I think that's something else that you know got a, a decent amount of attention at the argument and could potentially affect how the court ends up resolving the case. Brianne Gorod of the Constitutional Accountability Center. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Again, thanks for having me. 
Steve Aiden is the Chief Legal Officer and General Counsel at Americans United for Life in Arlington. His amicus brief contends that the principal legal basis for disclosures required in a medical setting is the need to elicit informed consent from patients undergoing a procedure by informing patients of that procedure's potential alternatives. Aiden argues that here, a disclosure about abortion availability just doesn't relate to the counseling and limited medical services offered at the pregnancy centers at issue here. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, your, your amicus brief here in, in Nifla versus Becerra, it really focuses the inquiry on um, the, the sorts of services that are provided uh, at these crisis pregnancy centers and, and argues that the, the constitutional question really turns and, and begins and ends based on that array or that limited array of, of services. Um, I, I believe, and you can um, describe it yourself, but your argument goes that uh, required disclosure can't be okay if it, it doesn't really relate, doesn't pertain to the sorts of services offered at these centers. So if the required disclosure you know, regards the availability of abortion and these centers do not provide anything um, really related or um, close to that sort of medical procedure, then the disclosure is impermissible. Is that roughly how, how, how your argument goes? And what's the constitutional basis for it? Yeah, that's not a bad recap, Brian. Thank you. The brief that we filed as Americans United for Life on behalf of thousands of pro-life uh, healthcare professionals, doctors, nurses, and others, really went to the crux of what we think is the issue in this case. And actually, it was the first question out of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's mouth, the first question asked of uh, the uh, pregnancy center's advocate at the beginning of the argument. And that was, well, isn't this just like Planned Parenthood versus Casey, where the Supreme Court said it was permissible and the First Amendment didn't apply, where the state was regulating informed consent requirements imposed on abortionists. And uh, the advocate, uh, Mike Ferris, uh, responded appropriately, just as we would have, by saying, no, the um, the standard set in Planned Parenthood versus Casey is, recall, a narrow exception uh, based on to, to the First Amendment rule. The First Amendment rule says there are broad rights on behalf of uh, healthcare providers to talk about virtually anything that they think is important uh, to a patient, whether it's vitamins or even in the case of a Ninth Circuit situation, uh, the Ninth Circuit said that uh, doctors have the right to recommend medical marijuana for their patients, uh, even though the federal government took the opposite view. So outside of the narrow context of a doctor providing an informed consent to a patient for a procedure they're about to undergo from the doctor, which is the context of Casey, the First Amendment applies. And I think that's right, and it's appropriate, and that in gist was the answer that Mike Ferris gave for the pregnancy centers. And I think it, it seemed to um, set... Uh, Several of the members of the court back a bit. Uh, they started to cast about for some way that these pro-life pregnancy centers in California could be equated constitutionally with abortion providers. Uh, but in the end, the attempt really kind of fell flat because what we have here in the pregnancy centers isn't uh, a situation where a doctor is counseling for a procedure that a woman is about to undergo. They're just talking about options. And a sign on the wall, which is what the law requires, isn't informed consent. It's just a sign on the wall and no 
legitimate healthcare provider would regard it as such. Okay, so the trigger in your view then is whether there's a medical procedure that's about to be underwent uh, and as opposed to whether the that notice that required disclosure relates to the, the sort of uh, counseling or options being uh, articulated by the service provider because um, on that, that latter point, you know, the, the, the notice is broader in, than just offering a state-subsidized uh, contraception or abortion. It also mm-hmm. notices patients to the availability of prenatal care uh, mm-hmm. if they choose to ch- keep the child. And so in that way, it would seem to relate to the provision of services at these centers. No, it, it, and the fact that there may have been elements of the forced disclosure that were okay to uh, the uh, pregnancy centers and some that were not really doesn't make any difference for purposes of the analysis under the coerced speech doctrine. Uh, you have a number of cases uh, in the Supreme Court uh, saying that any attempt by government to put its message into the mouths of private speakers is going to have to be justified by a, uh, a very strict scrutiny standard. You have to show a compelling interest and that there's no lesser restrictive means available to do this. Uh, unfortunately, as the uh, justices discussed with the attorneys uh, the other day, there really isn't any evidence in this record that California tried in many other ways uh, to apprise women that it pays for abortions, it pays for prenatal care and all of that. Uh, it just simply went straight to the horse's mouth, so to speak, and forced pregnancy centers to say that for it. And that is unconstitutional under the First Amendment. I think that the Supreme Court in this case will uh, will reaffirm that principle. Yeah, I just wanted to get um, your thoughts a, a bit more on that initial exchange at argument, um, led off by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but but jumped into by by several of the judges. I think um, Justice Breyer illustrated mm-hmm. this line of argument, maybe um, with with the most amount of imagery, talking about sauce for the goose being good for yeah. the gander, basically meaning that <laughs> if pro-life states can uh, require abortion facilities to let patients know before those procedures that there are other options if they choose to carry the child to term, like adoption and and uh, child support, um, then why can't pro-choice states do sort of the opposite and require um, that pro-life facilities to, to advise folks of alternatives, be them abortion or just state-funded um, prenatal care. Um, wh- right. How, how do you think that, that exchange all went? And what, what are your thoughts on that? No, that's, that's right. Uh, Justice Stephen Breyer is delightful to listen to. He spins out these uh, extensive, detailed hypotheticals, usually with his uh, hand uh, on, on, his, uh, on his head. And um, it's, it's really interesting to watch him at work. In this case, uh, he did say, well, sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. You've got pro-life states imposing on abortionists. Can't you have pro-choice states imposing on pregnancy centers? And uh, again, the, the pregnancy center advocate said, no, that's not the rule of Casey. The line that Casey uh, sets out is the line of demarcation between an actual procedure for which there is informed consent and just general information talking about a, uh, a, a medical item, you know, like abortion or prenatal care, whatever it is, or in the context of that Ninth Circuit case, Conant versus Walters, the availability of uh, medical marijuana. Um, so the, the point is that the First Amendment provides strong protections for all of us not to have to repeat what the state wants us to repeat 
uh, in most contexts. And in this context, what you have is, I think, a, a an appropriate judicial skepticism that uh, California uh, really has a compelling state interest in making sure every woman already, uh, well, every woman walks into a pregnancy center knows that the state provides free abortions. Um, I think there's a feeling that most women in California already know that, or that California had many other ways to apprise them of this fact, you know, signs on buses, billboards, things like that, and didn't have to go straight to the heart and, uh, you know, force that uh, message out of the mouths, so to speak, of uh, pro-life pregnancy care centers. And I think that's right. I, mean, I think we've got to be careful anytime the state, whether it's California or the U.S. government or any other state, says that it has a real important reason to force you to say something to other people. I think that's dangerous. Okay. Uh, this is a bit outside the specific argument raised in your brief, but I'd be curious to know kind of how the line drawing you propose maps on to a different kind of line drawing that, that, that because of this case's dynamics has, has um, raised an interesting issue, that being that um, if this sort of required disclosure is, is struck down, then in several states that are more pro-life where required disclosures must be given at abortion facilities mm-hmm. um, prior to those f- procedures informing patients of uh, you know certain potential medical drawbacks or mm-hmm. um, things along those lines. Um, you know, the interesting f- thing is that those would potentially then be challenged or more vulnerable. Um, it, it, would that mm-hmm. still be the case with the line that you propose, or, or, or would those be uh, well, st- uh, st- not, uh, more safe? Yes, you know, that question actually was asked, if I recall correctly, it was asked uh, by Stephen Breyer again of um, the Pregnancy Center's advocate, Mike Ferris, and uh, it was cast in the context of uh, a clinic that doesn't do abortions but simply refers for them. Uh, you know, perhaps, for example, uh, a Planned Parenthood clinic that doesn't do abortions but sends uh, women to a nearby uh, Planned Parenthood that does. And Mr. Ferris responded that that's not within the scope of Casey. It's not uh, informed consent for a procedure that the doctor is going to provide to the patient. And so you've got to be careful, uh, once again, when you try to expand um, otherwise limited rules uh, that are exceptions to the First Amendment. And what I found odd, actually, Brian, was you had Stephen Breyer and then Sonia Sotomayor, uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, traditionally um, pro-abortion justices. You had them casting around for a rule that might equate the two, abortion providers and pregnancy help centers. And I think that's more dangerous for their position than it is for the pro-life position because if you say, for example, that a state can force pregnancy centers to disclose to whoever walks in the door certain items that the state wants it to disclose, suddenly the narrow exception in Casey is blown up and the door is wide open for much more extensive uh, informed consent, well, much more extensive regulations on abortions than um, than uh, Casey even permitted. Uh, I hope that doesn't happen because I love the First Amendment, but also because um, I think that 
it's important for pregnancy centers to be able to operate and do their good life-saving work uh, the way they do uh, without infringement from the state. After all, you know, today there are uh, five times as many pro-life pregnancy centers in America as there are abortion centers. And I think that speaks volumes about um, which side has the passion and the resources to help women. Okay, uh, one last one. Um, overall, what are your thoughts on the arguments? And, and specifically as to this issue, I suppose, do you think it will inform the court's eventual opinion? Obviously, it, it led off arguments. So it seems like it's on their mind. Uh, the prognostication question. I have said many times, I think it was actually back to the Affordable Care Act cases when I swore off prognosticating about what the Supreme Court would do. But, you know, I'm like uh, like an addict. I have to keep going back to it. So in this case, uh, it, what I think you found in the dynamic was um, Justice Anthony Kennedy came out early. He made his view pretty clear uh, that it seems to be um, a burden on the speech of pregnancy centers. It does seem to be uh, coerced speech, and the constitutionality is as highly a suspect, if not uh, if not established as unconstitutional. And then you see, you saw, as I mentioned, uh, Justices Breyer and Sotomayor and Ginsburg trying to cast around for uh, some kind of uh, equation between abortion providers and. Um, pregnancy centers, but it, it, really the effort fell flat. And what I think you're going to see in this case, as we've seen in some other cases involving uh, intensely debated public issues, but in a First Amendment context, is I think you may see most, if not perhaps all, of the Supreme Court justices coming together around um, a, a solid principle, uh, and that would be the principle that a state may not reach out and engage in viewpoint discriminatory conduct against a private speaker's viewpoint. And that was done here in the form of coerced speech. I mean, there are different ways you can engage in viewpoint discrimination. You can require uh, an unreasonably high parade fee for paraders you don't like. You can give a, a bureaucratic uh, uh, official uh, unbridled discretion to review uh, parade um, parade applications. Uh, in this case, it was done through core speech, but I think Justice Kennedy saw through it, and I think the other members of the court, most if not all of them, will see through it and say, hey, this is just California trying to do what it can't do, uh, get a private speaker to uh, speak its message for it. Okay. Uh, well, appreciate you hazard, hazarding another prognostication here. Uh, we'll, we'll see uh, how, how it turns out. Steve Aiden of Americans United for Life, thanks so much. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Brian. Have a great day. John Baker is a partner with Green Espel in Minneapolis. He submitted a brief on behalf of the National League of Cities, the U.S. Conference of Mayors, and a few other similar entities. Those groups and his brief's main concern is that courts ought not to apply strict legal scrutiny to the sort of disclosures at issue here, as doing so would lead courts to expand strict scrutiny review to innumerable commonplace required disclosures, having the effect of diluting what's long been a very exacting judicial tool used to strike down pernicious speech regulations. He joins us now. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. So uh, you headed an amicus filing in this case that supports the the California law that's challenged. Briefly, could you say what motivated you in the, uh, to file this brief? 
Well, um, the interests of the um, organizations that um, we were writing for, the National League of Cities, the U.S. Conference of Mayors, International Municipal Lawyers Association, and International um, City-County Management Association, was, was relatively narrow and was in response to some positions that NIFLA and the other plaintiffs took. They had argued that the court ought to apply strict scrutiny to nearly any law regulating speech that's content-based, as the Supreme Court had defined it a couple of years ago in the Reed versus Gilbert case. Um, and they also urged the court to uh, essentially apply strict scrutiny in every compelled speech case, um, which both of which were pretty broad um, you know, arguments. And what we thought we really ought to do is explain to the court that if it were to agree with either of those arguments, um, that ruling would probably create a wake large enough to swamp a lot of state and local laws that are both familiar and are important. So, and we um, wanted to start by finding kind of a, a central principle that uh, reflects when strict scrutiny has been required in First Amendment cases and when something lesser called intermediate scrutiny um, is required. Sure, yeah, because obviously that's pretty much the most important determinant when it comes to figuring out a First Amendment case's outcome is what sort of scrutiny the, the court will apply when strict scrutiny the highest is applied. It tends to be pretty much a, a fait accompli which way the court is going to go. Regulations, prohibitions tend to, to fall, although not not always, but, but pretty much always, strict scrutiny will knock them down. Um, so I, mean, as, I, I agree with that. The, the phrase I keep using when I'm teaching on this is the, stolen from uh, um, uh, Adam Lip, Liptak of the New York Times that strict scrutiny is like a Civil War stomach wound. It's generally fatal. So <laughs> <laughs> drives the point home pretty it, clearly. Indeed. Um, sure, as you say, the petitioners here, I think, in, in their brief said there were three roads that, that independently led to strict scrutiny, the, um, the content of the, the, the compelled disclosure, it's um, the fact that it was viewpoint discrimination, as they said, and that it was a compelled, compelled disclosure generally. Um, as, as you said, it's important to kind of lay out and, and argue the case for why strict scrutiny shouldn't be applied in an overbroad manner. And you, you write that... Um, the worry is it it could dilute the standard and, and that after a while, if it's applied too often, that it might no longer look like strict scrutiny. It might be less than the strict. I suppose, could you walk me through um, sure. walk that, that argument? Yeah, this, this um, approach goes back to um, the former U.S. Uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, Lewis Powell uh, back in the 70s, starting with a, a case that was right after the Supreme Court had extended any First Amendment protection to commercial speech. And it was looking at lawyer uh, advertising restrictions, which, you know, uh, in the past were pretty strict. Um, and it needed to answer the question, okay, now that we've treated commercial speech as something that's potentially protected by the First Amendment, do we just treat it like political speech? Do we treat it like the, the speech that we've protected most closely and apply strict scrutiny? And in explaining to the court why the answer to that should should be no, he said that you know if we required that kind of parity to all kinds of protected speech, that could invite dilution simply by the leveling process. In other words, that um, the court would soon find itself in a situation in which 
well, you know, we've already said this speech is protected by the Constitution. Um, if it's content-based, then we're going to have to apply strict scrutiny, but the consequences of striking down that statute or statutes like that um, would be sufficiently discouraging that they'd say, well, okay, well, we will apply strict scrutiny, but gosh, we're going to conclude that, that it's satisfied here. And then, you know, what may be a, a uh, result-oriented kind of conclusion in that trivial case then becomes the way that um, government in the future would respond when, you know, somebody is trying to um, prohibit um, candidates from speaking based upon the nature of their message when real core traditional First Amendment protected conduct is gone after, they would just, you know, take the watered-down version of strict scrutiny that was called strict scrutiny. And uh, at that point, we get, you know, the, the what's supposed to be the most protected First Amendment expression um, suddenly vulnerable to direct regulation or prohibition. And mm -hmm. so that's what, what is sort of the risk of dilution or, you know, as a justification for treating more peripheral kinds of speech um, by something intermediate as the anti-dilution principle. And the Supreme Court's probably recited it in about five or more cases uh, along the way, um, including by Justice Scalia um, in the 1990s. Yeah, I wanted to talk just for a minute about the, the development of that doctrine that you say builds up around the worry of diluting strict scrutiny. It, it tends to um, create intermediate, uh, you know, it, it, uh, an intermediate scrutiny box for regulations on commercial speech or things like obscenity, as you write in your brief. Um, can you talk about how then this disclosure falls neatly in in that box? And I suppose as a, another piece of that question, you also cite um, a case cited by the petitioners um, as pointing to towards the other direction, Reed First Town of Gilbert, as sort of undermining that that doctrine you described. Sure, sure. I mean, what. What happened in Reed was that the Supreme Court increased the universe of uh, kinds of regulations that would be subject to strict scrutiny. Um, they didn't do so by closing up any exceptions, but they did so by taking what used to be an easy to satisfy test for content neutrality and basically threw it out or turned it upside down. So they, and, and as a result, for example, um, you know, a number of different circuits had upheld anti-panhandling ordinances under the First Amendment based upon the old easy standard. But after the Reed decision came out and the easy standard for content neutrality wasn't there anymore, those same courts concluded that their decision was wrong and that they now have to throw those statutes and ordinances out. And um, there was, in the process, a number of conversations about, well, okay, now that strict scrutiny applies, maybe we can satisfy this. And so, you know, for the first time, I was having conversations with a um, um, second-in-command at a city attorney's office in a top, top 50 city saying, you know, I bet I could write an anti-panhandling ordinance that would survive strict scrutiny. You know, we'd have it apply within... 10 feet of an ATM or something like that. And all of a sudden there's discussion about we're going to take a run at it. We're going to try and prove that some version of this law that used to be constitutional, we could make constitutional with an argument about strict scrutiny. 
And in the Reed case, um, Justice Thomas almost invited some of that because um, at the end of his decision explaining, don't worry, be happy, the new standard that I'm coming up with for content neutrality isn't really going to be a problem, he addressed a number of circumstances as trivial as that regulation that lets you put an extra sign on your house that has the number so that, you know, if grandma's over for Thanksgiving dinner and has a heart attack, the ambulance can find your house the first time. Um, he says, well, you know, those kind of things uh, might well survive strict scrutiny. Um, and so, first of all, it's his excuse for being strict. But on the other hand, um, it probably wouldn't um, without it being diluted. So that was sort of a signal to many of us who are watching this that we have to be very careful here to urge the court not to speak so broadly in the future. The next time somebody says, let's just have a single standard um, you know, without these exceptions here. And that's what the petitioners were asking for in the NIFLA case. So that's why we weighed in the way that we did. It was not just to protect the authority of local governments to continue to do things. It also has the positive effect of uh, making sure that when we're talking about speech that is really central to the First Amendment's purpose um, at a time in which people legitimately worry about whether or not uh, crackdowns on the press and things like that um, are, are more likely that uh, the court hasn't accidentally diluted the degree of scrutiny. Now, specifically as to the the required disclosure here, um, the, the doctrine that you describe is built up first and, and, and often around the concept of, of commercial speech, and, and this is a bit of a step away from that, sort of the what's called the professional speech doctrine, um, which in, in the arguments and in the brief seems to be a, kind of a disputed issue as to whether there is a professional speech doctrine. I suppose what's the case for why this particular disclosure should fall into that inter intermediate scrutiny box? Well, it, it's, we start from the principle that if you were to say that any compelled speech um, is content, that, and that um, if you have um, a compelled speech that is content-based, then therefore strict scrutiny has to apply. Well, it will always apply under the circumstances because the very point of a compelled speech requirement like, for example, a requirement that, you know, if you're operating a place that sells food, you have to put up a sign in the bathroom that says all employees must wash hands before returning to work. Um, um, it has to, by definition, be content-based. So, therefore, under the, uh, the plaintiff's rule, there would have to be strict scrutiny applied to a regulation about whether or not you can really tell a restaurant or a grocery store to put up that sign under the circumstances. And, you know, there's a, a number of other kinds of disclosures. And they're not ones that necessarily fall within the definition of commercial speech, although a lot of disclosure requirements do. There's also other requirements like, you know, hard hats required um, on a construction site um, that don't fit within that category but are familiar and harmless, um, but that would be difficult to justify under strict scrutiny uh, without watering it down. Um, one of the other things that's important, I think, in the background of this was 
um, there there was an earlier effort down in Florida uh, to try and wrestle with this concept of professional speech and whether or not if we call something professional speech, strict scrutiny should or shouldn't apply, and then what the result is. Um, this involved Florida's what's called the Glocks and Docks uh, law that actually tried to tell doctors that they, under a lot of circumstances, couldn't ask their patients whether they have guns at home. And believe it or not, a panel after Reed said, by a two-to-one vote, that requirement satisfies strict scrutiny. Um, and when you look at the court's logic, it wasn't strict at all. Um, they were doing exactly what we were worried about, and, and calling it professional speech entered into it. So, um, you know, it's a, a long way of saying that there were some dangers uh, reflected in earlier cases. Um, uh, and by the way, on that particular point, ultimately the entire 11th Circuit with the author of the first decision dissenting um, overruled that. But the fact that two Court of Appeals judges drew that conclusion, even on a temporary basis, really, I think, confirms the the risk of anti-dilution. Um, now, an, an earlier guest of, of the program and a fellow amicus, Robert McNamara from the Institute for Justice, and uh, he, and I think I can sort of fairly sum up his argument, is, is it seems a lot more sanguine with the idea of putting more regulations and laws through that strict scrutiny ringer, um, and you know, I think suggests that strict scrutiny is sort of there for a reason, and we have the equation that applies to it. And if so, if there if there are good governmental reasons, like for example, regulating professional speech, um, it's not a problem to plug them in at that stage and have the law pass strict scrutiny. Um, it's probably you know better. I would say in his mind, to have the courts look closely and apply rigorous scrutiny um, and, and, just, and just do the constitutional doctrinal math that, that's there to be done. What uh, What's the problem with, with that approach? Well, one of two things is going to happen, both of them bad. Let's go back to the example of a city that's got a regulation that says you can put one extra sign on you know the, the close to your house um, for the identification number. Um, with the address. Um, it's content-based because you've got to look at that in order to determine whether or not it's your house number or whether or not it's your birthday, for example. Um, now, if that's something that is subject to strict scrutiny, um, it's not at all clear that it would survive. You could certainly imagine a court saying, well, if we're going to keep this truly strict, um, a identification uh, provision in the sign code is so 2005. Um, in the era of the iPhones, everybody should have GPS. And so you don't really have to allow people to put identification numbers on the front because there's enough people out there who we think um, could use their cell phones and GPS to find you. And if there's not a record made by the city that cell phones didn't satisfy that, well, then you fail strict scrutiny. Or the alternative is that the court says, yeah, we think you're going to satisfy it. We don't want grandma dying because the ambulance is slow. Um, and the path to get there is, involves logic that really does generally water down strict scrutiny. Um, and so this is all a product of efforts uh, urged by the plaintiffs and by the Institute for Justice to take more of a one-size-fits-all polemic 
approach toward applying the standards rather than what um, um, California, the United States Solicitor General's office, and, and we have urged as a more context-specific kind of approach consistent with what the Supreme Court has done for many decades. I suppose you could imagine in that latter case, if courts were to use it strict scrutiny more often and have laws pass it more often, then there would be a lot of uh, precedential language created that perhaps could be used when there was really a, a pernicious or invasive state regulation that should be struck down pretty easily that could be supported in briefing from cases where, um, you know, we're talking about a less invasive or less problematic regulation. Right. And I think it, it, the, the fact that strict scrutiny is nearly always fatal, um, that it's really hard to actually find examples um, particularly at the Supreme Court level, where an ordinance has, uh, has managed to survive it, is important for preventative law reasons. It enables those of us who are writing ordinances and advising cities and counties about whether particular avenues are, are would be effective to say, if you get to the strict scrutiny stage, you will nearly always lose. And that usually ends the discussion. The problem with dilution is that it wouldn't end the discussion. You could then say, well, you know, there's some cases out there we could try and compare ourselves to if we got to that point, and it's bad for First Amendment protection for that to happen. To what extent was this issue touched on at, at oral argument? It seemed like there was sort of one main exchange between Justice Alito and, uh, and Deputy Solicitor General Jeffrey Wall about this point. I think Alito suggested that maybe we should be applying strict scrutiny here, and, and the Deputy Solicitor General said that same point that you've raised, that the potential for dilution is is present here? Right. This was the closing point of um, the United States in their argument. Um, uh, the last sentence from Sol Deputy Solicitor General Wall was, our concern is it's going to dilute strict scrutiny, and we're concerned that that's going to undermine the First Amendment. So even though the arguments themselves tended to focus on things that were more toward the issues of targeting and curiosity about the exceptions, you know, um, and, and other things, um, you know, it was nice to see that, particularly since the um, Solicitor General's brief really didn't talk about uh, the anti-delusion principle. So, Okay. Um, if you had to guess, do you think the court will apply strict scrutiny here, or do you think they might be leaning more towards applying a lesser standard? I think it will be a lesser standard. The key question is whether or not their analysis is context-specific, like we'd hope, or whether or not they make the mistake of trying to dumb down First Amendment law, um, as the petitioners invited them to in, to do in their briefs, but not as much in their oral argument. Okay, we'll find out soon. Uh, John Baker, partner with Green Espel in Minneapolis. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. And with that, our show for March 23rd, 2018 is complete. Thanks so much for tuning in. It is greatly appreciated. Don't forget that CLE credit is available to listeners. Just find a short true-false test appended to this podcast on our site. One hour of credit can be yours. A couple of other new reminders here before we close. One, to please ask you to like us or follow us. We're at LA Daily Journal and at SF Daily Journal. Your engagement is always appreciated there. Also, my production team has informed me that this podcast will, in fairly short order, be delivered via the usual podcast delivery methods like the podcast app. 
other mainstream avenues, so be sure to look for it there in the near future. I'm Brian Cardell. Before to speaking to you next Friday, have a great week. <laughs>